right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 319. Yes, that number is really getting up there. Episode 319, with that number, I want to give a shout out to first round draft pick from 2020, Sarah King. She had such an amazing 2020 season, both in the Challenge Cup and Fall Series, and she played 319 minutes for the Utah Royals in the Fall Series, scoring one goal. She also had a goal in her debut in the Challenge Cup. She's the only rookie last year who scored in both the Challenge Cup and the Fall Series, and she's one of a very small group of rookies to score in their NWSL debut. All right, two chats today. First, um... Both new chats, people I've not spoken to before for this podcast. First, talk to Jeff Greer. Uh, He is based in Louisville, covers a lot of sports, covers a lot of soccer. Um, He's been offering up some racing Louisville content, so I thought it was time to to talk to someone on the ground in Louisville about how that team is shaping up for their inaugural NWSL season. And then spoke to Matt Pravatsky, who launched Equal Time Soccer a few years ago. He's based in Minnesota, and he and I have been communicating off and on over the years about uh, whoa. So two very different chats, but I think you'll enjoy them both. And of course, in the middle, there's a Jen Splainer segment about next month's Olympic draw. And of course, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Keeper Notes and at Mix Zone. Of course, as always, two X's in that Mix Zone because, you know, double X chromosome. All right. So have a listen. All right. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Jeff Greer, host of soccer city radio uh, based in Louisville, which covers of course, Louisville city FC and racing Louisville, the newest NWSL club that will kick off like next month. I mean, Jeff, how excited are you that you're finally going to get women's soccer where Uh, you are? Like I, I, I have been a diehard women's national fan. Um, and, and I I wouldn't say that I like follow the ins and outs of selection. I mean, I do a lot more now that Twitter is available, but I've been following them for, uh, since the 99, uh, world cup. And uh-huh. so I've, I've, I watch a lot of their games and I just always have been like, Hey, they've got a nice new field here, a new stadium. The, the USL club Louisville city is really popular. I think they could be successful here. And, um, next thing you know, it's actually, it becomes a thing. And now we're only a couple of weeks away from them playing a game and everyone is just so excited, so fired up for them to be here. The club appears to be taking care of them really well uh, and giving them the resources and the facilities that they deserve and have earned. And, um, I mean, this city is going to absolutely love, love, love having them. So we're all just kind of counting down the days now until that April 10th opener. Well, what's strange for me is because for the first time in expansion history for NWSL, we actually announced a team more than a year than when they would first take the field in an official NWSL match. So in a way, it feels like it's been forever that we've known about (laughs) Louisville, especially the way that 2020 just stretched into a decade, right? But, you know, so that anticipation 
it's it's so strange i'm like wait haven't they played already it's like no it's <laughs> <laughs> like but it's so wonderful that you know the league got to a point where hey we could announce in october 2019 that louisville would kick off in 2021 so in the middle of last summer's challenge cup we get the unveil of of the logo right and they can start pushing the merch and build up to you know being able to have a broadcast for the expansion draft in november right you know just that there's a whole lead up to it and then january's draft um i mean i'm sure that created a lot of buzz in louisville especially you know having the number one pick um but also the number five pick you know um what are your thoughts on louisville's uh, mina ekich yeah i mean not just from louisville but playing for University of Louisville. Right. Um, well, I, the one thing that I will say about the long buildup, too, that I think feed, bleeds into what we're about to talk about is, I, you know, obviously any organization worth its salt is going to put a lot of time and in, in preparation into um, stuff behind the scenes to get ready for when that does come out. You mentioned in 2019. So you would think that uh, the people running Louisville City and the uh, soccer holdings uh, here in town, the ownership group, they there was a lot of planning and, and thinking about this process. And I know they've flown to England and they've looked at all these different clubs. And so they were f- totally preparing and building up to then the year plus long build up to actually playing and right. fielding a team. Uh, and so it, it, I think that gave them a nice runway to be able to build the facilities, to build the new stadium that they have, which is gorgeous. And I'm dying for it to be um, able to have full capacity. And it's because of players like Amina Ekic, who is a Louisville kid who grew up here, who played at U of L, which is basically their athletics programs are treated like a professional organization, especially basketball. Um, but soccer is popular. Men's and women's soccer is popular here too. So to have that hometown kid, uh, in addition to the number one pick who is in women's national team training camp and, and was a superstar at the college level, uh, to throw in some of the names that, um, that you know, like you would think Savannah McCaskill would be eventually get back into the national team mix once we get right. some retirements. Um, right. You talk about Yuki coming from uh, playing on the, the World Cup winners a, a, a decade ago, and as sore as a memory that is uh, for us Americans. Uh, so to build up around some of those names uh, and then just put the real like dot on the eye, cross your T, you've got a hometown kid who was awesome for Louisville an All-American obviously to be the fifth pick in the draft you have to be pretty good Um, it's just awesome I mean it's just like tailor-made what other kind of content does a local TV radio newspaper whatever need than having a local kid playing for the first professional team at the first tier I should say professional team that this city has had in um, let me count here 40 something years uh they had a, a an aba team way back in the day the kentucky colonels who were popular for a while basketball but everyone here has been hankering for top flight professional sports of some kind for years and years and years cincinnati gets it nashville gets it indianapolis gets it all within a two three hour radius uh, of louisville 
but Louisville wanted something of its own beyond the Kentucky Derby. So to have this first flight, first tier team, not that long after winning the World Cup, and then add in a Louisville kid on top of it, um, it, it's just super cool. And I think people are really excited uh, to root for someone from here and, and root for uh, a top tier team like this. Well, and I don't know how long you've been in Louisville, but do you remember uh, when uh, the U.S. national team played there? Uh, no, I don't. Well, how long ago was that? <laughs> so my my memory of it, there, there's, there's actually four games that they played in Louisville, but uh, summer 2000 uh, was the first time that CONCACAF did what they called the CONCACAF Women's Gold Cup. Mm-hmm. And of course, they, you know, they're trying to capitalize off of all the popularity of the 99ers. So they did uh, a three-city tournament. So I think mm-hmm. it was Boston, Louisville, and one other one other city i think but uh Hmm. they had they had two double headers there at papa john's stadium wow okay they also had one game in fall of 99 and then uh a friendly in 2004 to the lead up um to the olympics now i I would guess that the reason there hasn't been games since then is like 2004 2005 is when we started to have a explosion of new MLS venues, right? Mm-hmm. So now when we see the national team play, it's usually at Avaya Stadium, Dick Sporting Good Park, mm-hmm. Rio Tinto, right? You know, it's it's like they're going to all of those venues. So um, I'm really looking forward to see if, yeah, like there will be a national team game uh, at, at Lynn Family Stadium. I mean, that's a, what, a 15,000-seater? Yeah, and, and and it is funny that you mentioned that because I was I was still in high school when those games were happening, and and I grew up in Rhode Island, so I I have an excuse for not knowing they were in Louisville, but <laughs> but but that is yeah, that's exactly right, and, and uh, you know having traveled a, a good amount in Europe too, and gone to matches in France and um, and in England especially uh, in Belgium too, the soccer specific stadium. You know, I, I actually was talking about this on the radio uh, this morning. It is so similar to me to the basketball arena. I mean, it's just you're in there. There's a vibe to a soccer game. There's a vibe to a basketball game. And you pick it up when you're in a place that is meant to host people watching that specific sport. And it's 15,000 seats at Lynn Family Stadium. We got a glimpse of it last summer for Louisville City in the um, kind of extended or, or the the shortened, I should say, uh, USL championship season that they put together. And right. they had – about 4,500 fans uh, typically in the stadium for those games. It was limited capacity. And even that was awesome. So um, I can, I would bet all of the money uh, that Louisville eventually will be able to have a a national team game there and it will be packed and it will be electric. I mean, it's going to be so, so cool because it just has that feel um, that, that those stadiums need to have. Well, and and I've heard a lot of great stuff about Louisville City, and I remember hearing last year about like the the streak of what six years in a row making the playoffs, something like that. Yeah, and they've been to the Eastern Conference Finals. I'm going to mess this up, so I don't want to say, but a number of times in a row they've been they've won two uh, titles. They've been in the title match. Uh, I mean, they've been so successful. 
And they used to play at the minor league baseball stadium uh, downtown, which was fittingly called Slugger Field, uh, just down the street from the Slugger (laughs) Museum and the original Slugger Factory, which is a a cool little uh, tidbit that I'm sure if anyone visits town for games, uh, listening to this podcast, they'll want to go visit during the day before the game or the next day. Um, But it it just like – and I say this as someone who does play-by-play – they played in the outfield at the baseball stadium. And so, you you know, and they would run in over the pitcher's mound. They had to flatten the pitcher's mound and put, like, fake grass over it or, or just leave it as was, and they would run over dirt. And it's just not the same, you know. It's just not the same environment. Right. Um, but the, the success of Louisville City, it, it, it made up for that. And so people still showed up at Slugger Field, 11,000, 12,000 people for some of these games – and it felt like a soccer atmosphere. And so that that success um, and having something to do in the summertime and Louisville is definitely a craft beer city. Um, so I feel like soccer, the Venn diagram of soccer fans and craft beer fans and bourbon fans is a pretty <laughs> uh, almost entirely enclosed circles with each other. Yes. Uh, and so yes. <laughs> uh, and so that helped. That certainly helped with Louisville City, too, because there was one of our, our most popular breweries is literally in Slugger Field. Uh, it's right inside um, on the on the ground floor. So um, they built up a, a, a brand. And that's why I think Racing Louisville has been received already. Already, even though they haven't played a game yet, uh, has been received so well is because of Louisville City's success here, um, in addition to obviously the national team and and the popularity of women's soccer as it grows in the country, too. Now, you got to watch uh, Louisville's scrimmage, or I guess racing scrimmage against the UofL, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me what that was like, because... You know, we never get to see preseason. You know, they generally don't stream those games. Um, and, and of course, people can't even, in most cases, can't go watch a lot of the preseason, uh, you know, because of COVID um, or, or it's a closed-door match or, or whatever. Um, you know, what, what was that like? And, and what did you think about how, how Christy Holly lined up the players? So, super intense. Uh, he's, he is... Uh, as friendly as anyone I've met off off the field, but um, when he is when he is in manager mode, he is like he is super intense, um, and I respect that. I mean, that's kind of what you would expect from someone who is involved in the national team setup and has uh, managed before in the NWSL. Is you, you have to be intense uh, because this is they don't want to come in their first season in the NWSL and, and flop. They don't, they want to be competitive. Um, that's not to say that they're a playoff team or anything like that, but they, um, they want to be competitive. They want to, they want to win matches. They want to hold court at home. Uh, and so it was interesting watching him operate. Uh, he certainly uh, at halftime had a, a, a really animated tactical discussion with his players. I think they're going to play an up-tempo style um, that people will really enjoy. I was super impressed with two players in particular, um, Emily Fox, who sometimes like it doesn't matter what sport it is. When you go to a practice, you go to a game and you're just kind of like, well, who is that? And obviously I knew who she was, but you're just like, wow, that is like, she looks like she is on a different plane than even her own teammates. Um, and is just a blazer down that left flank, um, 
was so active in the attack that I forgot that she was a left back. Um, it was just, I mean, seriously, she had, I think she had two of the, the two assists on three goals. I forgot how many goals they ended up scoring with their first team, but it was like almost everything was through her and for good reason. I mean, she, she looked fantastic. Uh, Savannah McCaskill looks really good as well. Um, really quick, really dangerous on the ball. Um, so it was interesting seeing them operate uh, and, and cause havoc. Uh, and then I think Amina Ekic is going to be a really interesting player for them as a newcomer. Um, she has the, uh, and we've talked about, I've talked about this with a few people around the, the, the club and, and around the U of L program as well. She has the, the, the hunger to learn, which you always hear about that at the college ranks and, and once you get into the pros. And I, I think it's still somehow underappreciated how important that is. You have to be – I'm not saying you have to live, um, you know, eat, sleep, and breathe soccer. You don't. I mean, you can have your personal life, and obviously there's, there's a line that needs to be drawn for everyone for their own mental health. But she is, she is by all accounts, just obsessed with getting better. And you obviously have to be that way in the off season, but I think there is definitely a desire for her once she starts getting into matches and playing um, to really try to scale up to the level that she's playing against. And uh, I think that's going to be really intriguing to watch her develop. Uh, and there's a lot of players, a lot of young players who are familiar names for NWSL fans that have been around other teams and have had a chance to play alongside um, some really, really good players uh, over the course of their careers and, and maybe just been subs or not used as much. Or like Michelle Bedos is 33 and has it was the goalkeeper of the year a few years ago, but has mostly had to split her time uh, elsewhere. And now she's going to be the true number one. And, and so it's interesting – um, seeing those players now have the chance to go ahead and like, you're going to get matches, you're going to play, you're going to get reps, you're going to consistently play. Uh, and I'm really intrigued to see how that develops. Um, but from that exhibition, you could tell there are, there are pieces. And um, I, I think they're going to be able to play uh, a fun brand uh, of soccer as, as this thing un, unfolds over the next couple of months. Well, and they, they have a, a, a small core right now that's actually signed. There's 17 players that are under contract, a pretty big pool, of course, of preseason trialists and, and also some players who they have the rights for. But uh, I felt that they did really well in the expansion draft. Um, and I think there's an advantage to having a coach like Christy Holly, who's already been in NWSL. So you don't have the the double learning curve of a coach new to the league and a team new to the league. Right. Um, and also that he was, he was named last summer. Right. So he had time to, to scout or at least, you know, more than, more than previous coaches would have had, <laughs> you know, and, and getting a veteran like Michelle Betos along with Yuki Nagasato, huge to have those veterans when, mm -hmm. you know, they're in a position as an expansion team where those players right out of college they're going to need a lot more out of them than any other club would need out of their rookies. You know, they're, they're, they're mm -hmm. going to need, I mean, that to convert to a pro pretty quickly. Right. You know, Emily Fox has some national team experience under her belt. Right. But you know, it's, it's like, 
they're they're going to lean on these players. Um, mm. I I love their two picks from North Carolina that they got Lauren Malay and Addison Merrick, who I'm sure was really frustrating for Paul Riley to lose those players, but young players who we just beginning to see what they can do uh, last year, and you know now are are going to be shouldering a, a, a lot mm. of the load, you mm. know, um, and. I, I also was kind of excited to see uh, Shayna Matthews get mm-hmm. signed by the club, kind of returning to where she started her college career, um, you know, in the state of Tennessee. She started out at Vanderbilt before she headed down um, to Florida State, you know, so I was like, and, and she's something you know, she was off last year due to maternity leave, you know, but we've seen how potent she can be on offense. And, and I'm also thinking too about CC Kaiser, two seasons with the mm-hmm. dash, um, you know, the most used sub, but we haven't seen her score yet. So maybe this could be a, a great situation for her. I, I mean, I, I feel like when you're a young player coming into a new club like this, that maybe the possibilities are greater than at a more established club. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is like, so to, to make sure that I, um, you know, was on my P's and Q's before the, before the exhibition started. So when I was sitting there talking to staff and stuff um, that I would know what I was talking about, I, I was familiar with some of the players, obviously. Um, but, you know, some of them you're, you're kind of learning about and you maybe have seen their names um, in, in different situations, but the chance to watch them and know a little bit about them and, and like, uh, I mean, think about like Aaron Simon and Brooke Hendricks, for example, go and play for West Ham as they're making their transition to um, to England's first league now. Or um, like you mentioned, like some of these players who have had chances elsewhere to play relatively regularly spot appearances. Addison Merrick is a great example. I mean, she's playing alongside Abby Dahlkamper um, in North Carolina. Like there is a very short list of defenders um, for the best defenders in the freaking world. And that is one of them. Uh, and Abby Dahlkemper and, and for Addison Merrick to be playing alongside her for matches in the challenge cup and, and all of these different situations, just kind of learning um, next to someone like that to then take her to this environment. And they're basically saying like, you're going to be in the starting 11. You're going to be regularly on the, either on the subs bench or a starter. And this is your chance. And that's kind of the fun part about the expansion is some of these players um, getting that opportunity to really rise to the, to the top of the crop. And you mentioned um, CC Kaiser. I mean, it's just, it's this list of players who um, when you mix them into someone like Savannah McCaskill, who has been really successful in, in goal creating and shot creating actions, uh, Yuki Nagasato, of course, is going to be one of the, the leaders with Michelle Betos. I mean, you're mixing some of these really intriguing players who you almost are kind of like, okay, they have talent. What are they going to do when given the leeway to play? You know, what, how are they going to look? And it's just fascinating to me. And and you know what? There is certainly a chance that it could go poorly. I mean, there's, there's that chance that they build on a foundation uh, and and try to look at some of the big positives from the season ahead and, and say, okay, now we know what we need to do to compete at this level. uh, And we need to go out and figure out ways to be attractive to other players Um, So when you mix that with the facilities upgrades, which I cannot stress to you enough, 
I mean, talking to the players, um, talking to ownership was so, so important to them uh, to build that and to make sure that they are not the team that ends up uh, in the New York Post and all these <laughs> and all these different <laughs> reports uh, for having bad, you know, facilities and all this stuff. Like they, it, like the NCAA stuff with the women's basketball tournament that came up this week. Like almost, I don't want to say like beating their chest, but kind of just like a hey, you know, we, we we have taken this seriously. For them to be able to go out and say like we've got these nice apartments for players, we're helping them adjust to the city. We got care packages. Season tickets have been selling like crazy. Um, they're expecting to fill to whatever capacity the governor uh, allows uh, for the Challenge Cup when it comes uh, next month. I mean, they're doing all of these things to make Louisville uh, an attractive place, not just for the players who are already here, but for future opportunities. Uh, you mentioned the expansion draft. I think they went out and got rights uh, to players like Tobin Heath and, and Kristen Press to be able to be active in the future, to try to say, okay, if they don't necessarily want to come play at Racing Louisville, you know what, well, I guess they'll cross that bridge when it comes. Um, but uh, as long as you have those rights, those can be a powerful thing to go uh, be yes. active elsewhere. And, and that was such a critical strategy for them um, because I know that, hey, um, just so happens that one of the central midfielders for the national team who is an absolute superstar and is a a a 100% smash hit would be a draw on her own playing in Louisville because she grew up an hour and a half from here and is now being used as a winger and like a backup striker at Manchester city just happens to be from an hour and a half from here. So maybe Rose Lavelle is someone that they want to try to go get <laughs> in the future. Um, but you know what I mean? Like it just sets yeah. you up uh, to be a competitive uh, franchise. And I think they've been really smart. I'm sure there will be missteps. I'm sure there have been some that we don't, know about um but everything that i have seen so far suggests that they are in this thing to be competitive and, and build a good team and give people the opportunities uh to to succeed in this environment and, and make it all about their performance instead of them having to worry about all this other stuff going on elsewhere well that's why you know i'm glad we've evolved league wise that they were able to make the announcement as early as they did about Louisville. That gives the club so much more time to prepare. I mean, I think back to the dash, you know, being announced mid December before, uh, you know, mid April kickoff, Orlando wasn't much longer. You know, you had the, the sudden moves from Western New York to, to North Carolina and Kansas city to Utah. <laughs> now back Utah to Kansas city, uh, you know, that's, yeah. that's really tough. So, you know, all those things, being taken off, you know, the, off the list of burdens is, is huge. Now that doesn't always equate to instant success. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think for Christy Holly, it means that if things aren't working on the field, well, it's not because of behind the scenes right. things. It's like, okay, what tactics do I need to change or what training or, or how, how do we change the lineup? You know, that, that, that kind of thing. And one of the things I'm really happy about, um, the schedule this year, having the Challenge Cup leading up to the regular season, it gives Louisville uh, a real preseason uh, that we normally don't see in NWSL. We're actually playing other NWSL competition. Um, we've had the last few years pre-COVID, Portland's hosted a tournament with two other NWSL teams and in, in the U.S. U23s. And I've heard some of the NWSL coaches say that it's, it's like that that's so much more valuable than their other preseason, right? Because mm -hmm. it's it's tougher 
competition. Um, so for Louisville's entry into the league to have these at least four games before the regular season actually starts, but those four games are against NWSL opponents in a real match day scenario, you know, I, I, I think is huge, right? That it, it's like they could come away from the Challenge Cup with four losses, but it doesn't set them back in the standings for the regular season at all, right? Exactly. That, that, that little test run. I think that's huge. And, and I'm hoping the league will continue to use the Challenge Cup that way for the next few years because I, th- I think it's just it's a great way to keep it all competitive. I mean, we've got Angel City coming in next year, likely a, another team with that. And, you know, expansion can be difficult. We've seen that on mm-hmm. USL, MLS. That you know, and, and you don't want one team getting thrashed by all the other teams. It just doesn't you know? It doesn't. It's not enjoyable for the fans either. You know, home or away, right? Like, like it's it's always more exciting when it's when it's competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I'm just so thrilled for Louisville, and like I said, like just, it feels like it's been forever, and, and it's <laughs> and it, and it will be the same thing next year when Angel City kicks off. I was like, wait, haven't we been talking about this oh for, God, for, yeah. for two years now? <laughs> and, and 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 also like with MLS when like a team kicks off, I was like, wait, wasn't that three years ago? It's like, no, that's when it was actually. Uh, announced but yeah um, you know it, 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 it shows you it shows you how much the, the league has grown that we're not having this oh yeah you know so and so oh yeah they exist yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and i'm thrilled too that that we're seeing another nwsl club that's in a men's team women's team partnership but it's mm-hmm. not mls right like mm-hmm. i i think the advantage for racing you know, coming out of the Louisville City Club where, okay, not only is this a club that's been around for a while and has its own venue, but it's been playing in a league that has to fight just as hard as NWSL does for attention, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, MLS, you know, into its 26th year now, you know, so many of the people watching NWSL assume that MLS has been around, around forever because they don't remember there not being an MLS like you and I do. You know, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, so like they automatically look as oh, MLS, they don't have to do anything. And hey, MLS has such a large footprint now and the last several World Cups have helped them amp that up. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but USL, when you're perceived as the second tier, right, you're you're fighting, you have to do more grassroots, you have to be doing more promoting. So just like um, North Carolina courage being part of ncfc in north carolina at a, at, a, at a venue where like the teams just seem more equal if that makes sense yeah and and also it's like when a, when a top tier first tier i should say because top tier could top tier could be anybody as long as they run well but when a first league uh team in any sport shows up it's kind of just like a thing that is just kind of built in, you know, like you're just kind of like, okay, um, I, I grew up in New England. So it's like, okay, you know, you want to go up to Boston this weekend and watch the Red Sox. Like it's just there, you know, it's just kind of an automatic thing. And there's everyone thinks of it that way. Louisville city, like you said, they fought, I mean, they fought their butts off to build a fan base and Louisville is very much a city um, that has a, a major, I don't want to say hipster undercurrent, but just like the undercurrent of young people here who like 
cool things and fun things. Um, like I said earlier, the craft beer industry has taken off here. Louisville is a huge foodie city. Actually, um, I don't know if this is still accurate, but a, a couple of years ago I was on a tour – I don't remember why it was just on a local tour at maybe at a distillery or something. I forgot where I heard this, but uh, Louisville has the third most restaurants per capita in the United States behind only new Orleans and New York city. I think that uh, is accurate. So a city that really like takes great pride in, I guess, artisanal things, art, uh, music, uh, my morning jacket, uh, Jack Harlow, cage the elephants from just down the road, uh, and Bowling Green. It's a city that really takes great pride in building things up from the grassroots, and and Louisville City tapped right into that. It was an opening, and they filled it. And they, like I said earlier, I mean, they were getting ten, twelve thousand people at Slugger Field when the baseball team, with all due respect to their AAA um, Cincinnati Reds affiliate here, is getting like two hundred and fifty people at their games. I mean, you could go, you could buy a dollar ticket, or basically get in for free and walk right down and sit behind home plate, and no one would say anything to you uh, for those baseball games at Louisville City. You need to get your ticket. Like you've got to get a ticket if you even want to get in and hope that there's somewhere for standing room only uh, for some of these games. Seriously. I mean, it's crazy uh, how successful it is to the point where like my in-laws who are not soccer fans at all, in fact, find it kind of boring uh, are like, we got to get tickets to racing Louisville. We got to get tickets to Louisville city. Like they're interested. And, uh, and that, I think that framework was put in by Louisville city and racing Louisville, it's like racing Louisville is sprinting because Louisville City started the walk and the jog, you know, and, and it could have been the other way around, too. It could have either either or. Um, but that's where we are. And I think that that has helped immensely um, in building the popularity of racing Louisville. I cannot tell you enough. And I I. I always, my friends and I are all political junkies too, and we try not to to overcompensate the yard sign, uh, that old yard sign metric that political scientists always joke about is like, <laughs> who has the most yard signs? But I got to tell you, I have seen so many cars uh, with formerly, presumably would just have the Louisville City bumper sticker, and now they've got racing Louisville and Louisville City. Like it's a thing here uh, and there's a lot of them so um but one other thing i wanted to touch on that that you mentioned earlier like to have the challenge cup set up the way it is so you get on april 10th i know that uh, it, it probably won't be and the racing little folks are like hey we've got a good team too don't just mention what players on other teams might be coming to louisville uh so right. like when i'm like alex morgan is probably going to be in louisville for a game like it's like okay but also we have good players here we want to build that and i totally get it but like to have that as your opener to have a true thing that people can point to and say this is our opener at the stadium that's kind of like a soft launch with the challenge cup and then you get the chance to play the courage in your in your little group um i mean talk about like getting literally hurtled into the deep end right away um <laughs> in your first four matches you're playing uh you're playing the courage uh, that's going to be a great opportunity for them to measure themselves so uh, i think it's a really fun uh, set up in a great idea, like you said, to put them in a competitive environment before the actual competitive environment comes. Um, and people will be up for that. And, and I think the club will appreciate getting their players that run uh, before things officially kick off. 
Well, last question for you, Jeff. Um, you know, your thoughts on the value of having a club located where Louisville is relative to the other teams, right? Like, I, I feel like it's filling, it's it's in the middle of a big circle, right? The circle having the edges of Chicago, Kansas City, Houston, Orlando, North Carolina, right? Like, I think that's so valuable that when you look at Louisville on a map, there's a, a lot of big cities in a short driving distance, right? That obviously don't have any Bissell teams. So the club can, can feed that interest as well. Absolutely. You know, like I said earlier, the, um, something that I didn't really, I moved to Louisville. I had been working in Florida for a couple of years and, um, I didn't realize this until we were, my dad and I were literally driving the U-Haul truck up the interstate to Louisville. And I didn't realize how close some of these cities are. Nashville is less than three hours, depending on how, how fast you drive. Um, Cincinnati is an hour and a half, maybe less depending on how fast you drive. Lexington, <laughs> Lexington is like an hour and 15 minutes away, uh, just down the road, 70 miles. Um, Indianapolis is two hours to an hour and 45 minutes. Even St. Louis and Chicago, four, four hours, five hours. Atlanta is like five and a half hours. So all within that one radius are all of these major metropolitan areas that uh, have a crap ton of soccer fans. And I can guarantee you they're going to attract a lot of them. And something that's been interesting to me is racing Louisville's metrics, like their web metrics um, in terms of clicks and page views and all and, and impressions that they've been getting from fans have been crazy high, like crazy, crazy high for the interest in the team. And a lot of it is local, but a lot of it is regional and national because people love women's soccer and it's got this great grassroots um, fan base that is just continuously growing organically and, and is blowing up. And I would imagine there's a lot of people in this area who, um, you know, it, it's, it's a long drive to, to DC or, or, or down to Raleigh uh, to tobacco road or some of these other places you probably have to fly, but Louisville is driving distance. We've got four highways coming into Louisville, four interstate highways. So it's pretty convenient to get here uh, as much as the spaghetti junction in downtown causes uh, <laughs> a lot of traffic consternation for all of us here, but it's just so easy to get here. And the city is built for hosting people because we host the Kentucky Derby, because we host a lot of NCAA basketball tournaments right. um, too. So we're built for this. Uh, we're built to have people come here. And um, I think that it's also not to go off on a tangent of recruitment, but in the future, if Louisville is interested in, in trying to bring national team players here, I mean, it's Chicago and, and Louisville are really the two, maybe Kansas city, but that's, I mean, that's eight hours from here. That's kind of in the other direction of the quote unquote Midwest. But if you're a player who wants to play close to home, Louisville is close to a lot of places that are home for people. So um, right. I think that also makes for an interesting recruitment tactic too. So it's a great location. It gives us a, a real footprint in this area. And um, I know that they will welcome any and all drivers from Detroit to Nashville to Indianapolis, whoever wants to come watch racing Louisville, <laughs> I can guarantee you uh, they will welcome you with open arms, uh, especially once we finally round the corner and are able to go back to uh, capacity crowds and all that stuff. 
So I have to ask one last fun question. Um, okay. If, if you got a Louisville jersey and put a name and number of a player on it, you know which 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 player would you would you pick right now? And and I know oh, you know you're 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 kind of supposed to be a little bit unbiased, since you know because of your play by play work. But you know if if you were crazy fanboy. <laughs> and 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 your and and your wife goes okay. You only get one jersey, and we'll, we'll put a name and number on it. But you can only get one. Oh, um, you know who's the who's the name that you would want people as you're walking around Louisville to go? Wow, who's that? Or wow, yeah. it's so cool that you have that. Okay, so I, I I'll I'll say four. I have four contenders. Okay. <laughs> okay. I've got Amina Ekic just because of the local connection, and I think her jersey will sell a lot. And by right. the way, they have not released the kits yet, so everyone here is like waiting on bated breath. for, for the kits. Um, <laughs> oh my god, like crazy! And I think Louisville City also has uh, an alternate uh, uni that they're going to put out that people are excited about too. Um, Emily Fox, just because I have so much respect for her and think she's going to have a really nice career. Um, and we're going to see her a lot more for the national team in the future. Um, I know she's a goalkeeper, but now that I know her and have worked with her, Michelle Betos, um, doing color analysis uh, for us uh, on the ACC network last weekend, um, could not be a nicer person. Like, could not I, I I cannot stress this enough. Like just was so friendly, um, and and so uh, interesting. She's got a great family history. She's Greek, so she's got some funny Greek family stories. I mean, just a great <laughs> uh, person to be around. So I want to support her. And then um, I always am worried I'm going to mispronounce her last name. Is it Millier or Millet? Lauren? Millier? It's actually Malay. Malay. Okay. Yeah. I always am worried I'm going to mess it's, it up. It's, it's have, a strange one. Yeah. It's a tough one. Cause you just never know. Um, I may go with her just because I heard from Michelle that she's a Leeds United supporter, uh, through a family, <laughs> family connection. And I promise you, I am not a promotion front runner in the Premier League. My family spent a summer in England in 1998, right after uh, that famous World Cup where David Beckham got sent off against Argentina in the uh, quarterfinals for allegedly stamping on Diego Simeone, um, who I still do not like because of that um, <laughs> horrific acting job that he did, which is just classic Argentina. But anyway, um, uh, I, I fell in love with Leeds because they were this brash team. They played just kind of a boring 4-4-2, but they were brash and physical. They didn't care who they were playing. Uh, a couple years later, they made it all the way to the Champions League semifinals. And so I've, I've just always been Leeds, even when they were terrible on uh, having financial problems and a lot of other embarrassing scandals that we don't talk about. Um, so if we have that alliance, I may wear Lauren's jersey uh, out of all of these players. Uh, so I think that may end up being it, but uh, I reserve I'll, the right I'll, I'll to change it. Go. I'll let you go with the four contenders. I think that okay, that's, thank a, that's you. a good plan, that. since, especially since the kits aren't out yet. But uh, yeah. Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about racing Louisville. I've, I've been anxious to, to find someone on the ground in actual Louisville, um, you know, r- reporter wise to, uh, you know, give me some scoop. So I really appreciate it. 
Of course. I hope I didn't talk too much. I'm just so excited for this team. Um, everyone here is just like amped to go. And um, it's been really fun kind of watching them grow their social media presence over the last year plus and get people all excited. And now they have players and faces that they can think about. And so I'm happy to talk about them whenever, uh, whenever you want. And uh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Time for a little gensplaining. This week's topic, the draw for the Olympic women's soccer tournament this summer. Uh, We do know that the Olympics are going to happen. There won't be any fans uh, from outside Japan, but hey, the games are happening. We're going to get to watch them on TV. There's 12 teams in the women's tournament. We know 10 of those teams already. So host Japan from the Asian Confederation, Australia, Uh, as well as the winner of the China-South Korea playoff, which happens in April. And then from Europe, we have Netherlands, Sweden, and Team Great Britain. Those are the top three finishers from the 2019 Women's World Cup, with Team GB taking England's spot. From CONCACAF, of course, we have USA and Canada. From Oceania, we have New Zealand. From Africa, Zambia. From South America, Brazil. And then the final team will come from the winner of the Cameroon versus Chile series, which will also be in early April. So that's basically a playoff between the second place team from Africa and the second place team from South America. So you've got 12 teams. They're going to be drawn into three groups of four. The draw for the tournament will be held at, um, in, at FIFA's headquarters in Zurich, Switzerland on April 21st. I'll be conducted by FIFA's chief women's football officer, Sarai Barman. And like I said, 12 teams will be drawn into three groups of four. Host Japan, they automatically, uh, they're seated, um, a seated team, and they're assigned to the position of number one in their group. While all the remaining teams are seated into pots based on their latest FIFA rankings. And we will see new rankings on April 16th, right after that April FIFA window. So based on those rankings, the 12 teams, well, 11 teams other than Japan, uh, will be then sorted into pots. Um, Now, of course, Team Great Britain is not technically a FIFA member, so they don't have a ranking. So they're going to be seated based on England's ranking. And really the only rule for this kind of draw is that no one group can contain more than one team from any confederation. So U.S. and Canada cannot be in the same group. Sweden and Netherlands cannot be in the same group. China and Australia cannot be in the same group. Uh, Say Chile wins the playoff against Cameroon. Chile and Brazil cannot be in the same group. Um, And I know it sounds weird, to hear that Australia is in the Asian Confederation because Australia is not in Asia, the continent, right? But about 15 years ago, the Australian Football Federation petitioned to move from Oceania to the Asian Confederation because on the men's side, they wanted more of a fighting chance to qualify for the World Cup because Oceania on the men's side only gets half a slot, which basically means a playoff slot. And they were generally going up against a fourth place South America team and usually not advancing. So they found they had a better shot playing um, more competitive soccer within the Asian Confederation. So if you ever 
get confused and go, why are they talking about Australia as an Asian country? It's not really an Asian country. It's just a member of the Asian Confederation. So long story short, we have the draw coming up April 21st. That's when we'll know exactly who the USA's group opponents for the, the Olympics are and what the possible uh, matchups will be for quarterfinals, semifinals, final. Um, it's a smaller tournament than the World Cup. Of course, there's many reasons for that. Chiefly being one, uh, since it's not a soccer-only event, there's a huge number of athletes. And even pre-COVID, uh, the IOC was, tries to control um, how many athletes are at each event because um, I think it's like well over 12,000 athletes at the Olympics. And secondly, uh, from FIFA's perspective, um, because FIFA does run this tournament, right, in conjunction with the IOC, they don't want anything to be considered more important than the World Cup. Uh, so the World Cup will always be bigger, better, more thorough, qualifying, etc. Anyway, hope that's enough information and not too much gensplaining. Uh, but mark your calendars for April 21st for the Olympic draw. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Matt Pivrotsky from Equal Time Soccer. Matt, tell people where is Equal Time Soccer based? Because by the name, you you don't really know. But so you've got to tell us. That's true. It's especially silly uh, since it's specifically based in Minnesota and focused on Minnesota women's soccer that there's there's no signal to folks in that. Uh, But thanks so much for having me, Jen. Uh, Really happy (laughs) to be here. So yeah, Equal Time Soccer focuses on... um, Minnesota women's soccer. And I think the idea behind founding it was just that there are so many good national voices like yourself, like folks at Equalizer, now obviously Meg at at The Athletic, um, that I thought the one sort of natural gap that existed was folks focusing on the the smaller markets and digging in a little deeper because there's no way I would cover, you know, the national team or NWSL as as well as the folks who have been doing it and really know their stuff. So um, Minnesota... Uh, lack that type of attention and it was just a a great opportunity well and and there's some good soccer roots in minnesota um i'm sure most people have no idea that the first ever home game played by the u.s women's national team was played in minnesota in blaine minnesota actually i think it was like the first six home (laughs) games because what it what is it called now it's the u.s national training center national sports center yeah national sports center Mm -hmm. yeah um, and so like 1986, you know, it goes back all the way, you know, our, our goalkeeper from 99, Brandis mm-hmm. Gurry from, you know, from Minnesota. So yeah. you've, you've got some good roots there and we're starting to see, um, you know, players in NWSL with, with some kind of Minnesota connection, like, um, Danny Rhodes, right. Or she's out of Minnesota, she, uh, Wisconsin, but still, oh, like, Wisconsin, sorry. Definitely, definitely familiar to uh, Gopher fans because any really rock star Big Ten forward is sort of like in all of our nightmares that we had to watch and, and face off against. <laughs> well, I'm sorry uh, for... I brought up a name from your your, your nightmare. <laughs> so, so let, let yeah, let me not go just off script. Let me let's say let's we can say Cat Park Hill who played backup for yep. FC Kansas City, Cassie Kelman who I wish she hadn't stepped away from the the league because she was a beast in the best possible way. Like at yep. least one maybe two seasons as, a, as, a, as an iron woman mm-hmm. um 
And and as we were talking about before we started recording, um, you know, a coach from Minnesota now in NWSL, Allie Lipscher. I know you're one of her big fans. Yeah, we will. We will. Minnesota will claim Allie Lipscher for the rest of her life, even <laughs> though she lived here for all of you know several years. She's a Hawaii native who then played at Duke and then played you know in the pro ranks. I think in Atlanta and Boston and Australia. Um, but she coached the University of Minnesota goalkeepers for uh, a couple seasons and now coaching at Kansas City. So she, yeah, we will absolutely claim her uh, for the rest of forever. Sorry, Hawaii. Uh, <laughs> Ali Lipscher is ours now. Um, and Minnesota produces a ton of talent that I think uh, in the future will be captured better by the league. I think you and I have talked before, Jen, of just um, – having a really limited number of teams doesn't just mean that, you know, every new team you add isn't just the incremental growth of 25 roster spots. It's sort of the cumulative growth on top of that. And so there's all these players that the league doesn't feel quite big enough to make literally no money and play on a reserve team yet. But if it were slightly bigger and you made a little money, or if you could live in your home market, you know, that fringe, um, deep bench player that we saw like in the fall challenge that type of player is actually coming out of minnesota every single year they just don't always keep playing professionally or they go overseas for example so that's the type of player that i think as the league grows you're going to see a lot more of those minnesotans in the league yeah and with you know like you said the fall series giving a chance to to see a lot of bench players and it made for some really dramatic soccer we had much more high scoring games than we did Mm -hmm. in the summer's challenge cup and then even this year with you know the rosters will be a little bigger for challenge cup than they would be normally um but even more importantly you've got that olympic window where u.s players will be gone other internationals will be gone so teams can sign national team replacement players right Mm -hmm. and then you follow that up with we know we've got angel city coming in in 2022 very likely a, a club along with that um and and that's huge right to add 26 possibly another 26 on top of that spaces and like you're saying behind that it's like it's not like it's a static 26. It's mm-hmm. a, hey, there's training players. Um, you know, I, I think we're almost kind of leveling out in terms of you don't have a rash of young retirements every year, right? Because there's more opportunities, not just in NWSL, but also um, a- abroad. So mm-hmm. like it, it, it seems like it's balancing out, which in some ways can make things a little tougher, right? Because right. there's not suddenly gaps, but I, I think it also just it levels everything. And, you know, and I'm so happy to see, you know, the last couple of years of the increase in the minimum salary, the supplemental spots, the fact that players now have year round housing. Um, and that started at the beginning of 2020. That cannot be stressed enough how valuable that is. Right. Because one, that's a cost that's covered for the entire year. Two means you don't have the cost of moving in and out at the beginning of a season, right? Like the mental stability, the like that's that's huge. Um, so we've come so far. We know we have a long way to go, and and, and I know that you think a lot about like, hey, I want a team somewhere near me that's not a 10 hour drive right like <laughs> like right. like hi i'll drive four hours tell like three four <laughs> hours i'll do it um 
you know, and and I I can remember what that was like, right? When WSA launched um, way back in the day in 2001, there were eight teams, but not a one in the middle of the country. They were all East and West Coast, right? We didn't even have a Central Time one. They were all right. You know, but I was like, hey, I picked a couple. I followed them. I traveled, whatever. It was the same thing for WPS. Not a one in Texas. There was at least, you know, Chicago and Central Time, but still pretty far. So for me, finally getting uh, the Dash as the first expansion team in 2014, I'm like, oh, my God, there's a team (laughs) in my city. There's automatically going to be home games every year, you know, that I that I can put on my calendar and just go to, right? That that you get to take it for granted, right? Right. So so from your perspective and the perspective of any group I see on Twitter, like the fans mm-hmm. in Atlanta, the fans in Las Vegas, the fans in Vancouver that are like, there should be a team here. You know, I hear you. I feel you. We know there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes, business-wise, that has to happen for the league to say, okay, you get a franchise. We can't control that stuff. But people like you, people like me, what we can't control is like how our how our communities engage with fans, what we can do as, you know, voices. I don't want to say media, but just like, you know, voices that can amplify stories that wouldn't other be otherwise be amplified and capture a, a, a fan base. That is something that you can, if there's a potential local investor, you could say, look, look, all these people are already following me and listening to my podcast and going to Minnesota college games, you know, that, that, that showing that there's, there's a fan base already there. So I know that th- that's part of the reason that you started equal time, right? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, it's, it's really tough um, in a, in a place like Minnesota where, there doesn't even really seem to be sort of short-term prospects for an NWSL team. I think a certain level of fan where maybe they turn into the world cup or tune into um, like national team friendlies or they, you know, they follow Megan Urpino or Crystal Dunn, or, you know, maybe they, today they turned in and they got to see Midge purse at the white house, you know, like that right, level of right. fan where they're like, Holy crap. Oh look God. at these women soccer players at the white house, which was so, you know, obviously Megan Urpino and Midge purse are two, badass women standing at the podium in the White House. It is a big deal. But for that level of fan who hasn't dug um, necessarily deeper into their local local teams, I think part of what I try to do and, and part of what people sort of need to do, like you said, is find some level of local connection you can because actually demonstrating that local fandom is part of what can bring you um, a higher level team. So, I mean, I think it's fairly famously known that you know, Minnesota United before they were in MLS on the men's side was in the NASL. They were playing up in Blaine, like we just spoke about, you know, at the beginning of the podcast at NSC in a sort of second rig suburb. And they were selling games out eventually to like, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand fans. But until then, there still was a lot of ownership challenges, you know, from their days back of being the Thunder and then the Stars and then right. you know, all those all those phases in lower division leagues. But them having such a fan environment actually convinced the ownership group to invest and then they moved to MLS. So a similar thing, I think, needs to be on people's minds when they're supporting women's soccer in non-NWSL markets, which is how do we actually make some kind of connection? And maybe you don't live and breathe it like you and I do, Jen, but how can someone find um, something that makes sense for them? How can they find a team that they watch once in a while or go to games to once in a while? Because right. you, you need to find something that you can then build that connection to. 
Um, so I, I'm super in favor of that. And I think on the flip side, you know, one feature I'm going to be doing next week on equal time is having uh, folks from the supporters group in Kansas city and the supporters group in Chicago sort of compete for Minnesota fans in the meantime. So like, if you love do really, really want to follow an NWSL team as a Minnesotan and you want to drive, you know, four or five, six hours to a game, but you don't know which six hour drive to do. Uh, that's like the type of thing. It's like, hey, if people, if people just choose to not follow college soccer, even though the Gophers are really fun to follow, or they don't want to follow the WPSL in the summer, and they'd rather road trip six hours, I also want to help people have an on ramp to that. So it's kind of like <laughs> the the whole game in in women's soccer, even now, is I think giving more and more different opportunities to on ramp fans, and it's sort of like whatever that fan's reason is for getting engaged has nothing to do with me. I just want to give multiple reasons for them to get engaged. And if they find a way to get hooked, that's a win. Yeah. And and I totally echo that, that sentiment. And also just, um, you know, part of the reason that I do like the Jens Planner segment for this podcast is I know that if you're new to the sport, there may be things that you don't understand why it's happening, right? You might right. not even know some really simple rule differences. You know, it's like, or maybe you followed college soccer, but you don't understand that, you know, well, international is different. And, you know, the league rules can change. Um, you know, even FIFA makes some changes. And to me, that's that's similar to that on-ramp thing of, of just, Hey, we know people are interested. Let, let's try to give them the answers. It's the same reason I do the worksheets that I've done in the past for, say, the World Cup and the Olympics, where you can plug in the the score and it'll calculate the standings. Because we all have that curiosity as the tournament progresses of like, well, okay, everybody's two games in. If this happens and this happens, then who wins the group, right? Right. And right. one of the things I've noticed the last couple of World Cup cycles, especially having worked both of the last two two world cups is it you know on the men's side there's so much media worldwide right it's covering it from long before they do the draw that even before the draw they have all these like draw calculators where you can play the draw yourself right whereas um even though women's coverage has come a long way in this country and is really growing in Europe and is starting to pick up in Mexico, right? Like it's still not a worldwide thing. So you don't have nearly as much media covering it. So like when we had the draw for France 2019, it wasn't until the day before that uh, the Federation, the French Federation noticed that there was an error in the schedule. <laughs> right. You know, so, so they had to like release right. like a new like, oh, it's actually this is how this is how it's going to work. It's like, oh, my God. Right. right? Well, like, I think those those explainer segments are also so valuable because it also cuts against the grain of sort of the stereotype of soccer fans where it's the since I was an early fan, I sort of have this pride in it. And then I do a little bit of gatekeeping, even if it's not intentional, because, well, wait, you weren't following when I was. And so, you know. You're, I think you're the epitome of the opposite of that, where you're you're helping people come in. I mean, folks like me, you know, when I cold email you about a random issue and you respond, <laughs> I mean, you're you're like you're pulling more people into that movement. But that ex- even the gen planning segment is such a great example of that, where um, it helps people feel more comfortable about like, oh, everyone's trying to learn this. Yeah, because that gate that gatekeeping thing is such like an American soccer thing because fans felt so prideful for so long about 
I don't follow the NFL. I follow soccer. And it's this like counterculture, whatever. And so it creates this like kind of, even for me, you know, moving down to the Twin Cities from a rural part of Minnesota, there was this existing soccer culture where I'm like, I don't know a single person around here, you know? So it's, um, unless people are proactive and trying to make it more accepting, it can be kind of daunting to go into this place where it seems like everyone is friends, you know? And so it's, yeah. uh, I, I really appreciate that perspective that you bring because it's still as much as the game has grown, it's still this thing where we need so many more people to come and yes. get attached to a team or a league or something else. And that's such a great point about about gatekeeping, Matt, because I remember hearing a couple of years back, um, and this is on the MLS side of things in Portland, that some of the one fan group was saying that, hey, unless you've been following the Timbers since 2011, you know, we don't want you. I'm like, right. Why? Why would you do that? You like, had to you had to show your like, MASL you realize, season ticket or something. Yeah, like, do you realize eventually that all those people will be dead? Like, 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 like you do have to like. It's it's a constant replenishment. Hello, like why right. why do you need to exclude anything? And especially when I think those of us who have been soccer fans in, in in any way, shape, or form, even before you know maybe getting connected to women's soccer, it's like, hey, we've already been on the outside, right? You you right. still hear the phrase "big four sports" in the U.S. and you know they're not in, including us. Uh, you still see stuff like I've seen. I remember Texas Monthly ran a piece several years ago saying, yeah, Houston hasn't had a national title in sports since, you know, 1995. I'm like, excuse me. Is it like, like, wait, you're just deciding that major league soccer doesn't get, you know, that, that, that that kind of stuff. Right. So I don't think there's any need to, to exclude anyone. And I also, one of the big things that I learned when I was first really getting engaged, which would have been, you know, 98, 99, 2000, was understanding the difference between club and country because I think many women's soccer followers came to the sport through the U.S. women's national team, right? And that's such an easy concept to understand, especially with the Olympics, right? That was kind of their first big bang is the 96 Olympics in terms of awareness, right? You know, so we all get that. You're playing for your country. But since we don't have a long history of soccer in this country in terms of in people's heads, right? Like we we do, but it's a very buried history Um, to understand what club versus country means. um, You know, it took me a while to understand. And and then I I figured out a great way to explain. I remember um, back in the day when Yao Ming was still playing for the Rockets and and it was about, I guess, I think he was still playing when Beckham joined MLS. And I remember people asking, hey, is, is Beckham going to play for the U.S. men's national team now? Right. <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> and I realized that Yao Ming was a great way to explain it to people. I would say, hey, Yao Ming plays for the Houston Rockets, right? They're like, yeah. I said, but if he goes to the Olympics, who does he play for? And they're like, China. I'm like, exactly. Exactly. Right. LA Galaxy is David Beckham's club, his country is England, right? And it's because all of our sports, baseball, football, um, basketball, I mean, hockey's still that half. So it's, it, it's not right. quite, you know, as, as dominant. It's like, we almost never see it played country versus country. You right. know, you have, you have the exception of the dream team a little bit at, at the Olympics, but it's like, we're so immersed in the club side of it. Yeah. So, other sports, other sports are literally trying to sort of duplicate what soccer has already right. by manufacturing it now, you know, like basketball's creating the world cup, you know, baseball's right. creating that international play, but 
it's more something they're doing in response to all the success of worldwide soccer. Yeah, exactly. It's the, for a lot of sports, it's the flips, it's the opposite. Yeah. yeah. So, so for on the soccer side, it's been, you know, kind of teaching people, teaching fans that it's like, Hey, you can follow these players on the, on the club level. And it, and it's just as if you were following your favorite NFL team or major league baseball team, but there's this like doubling effect. It's like, you can follow both. You don't have to follow both, right? <laughs> right you can right. like follow the U.S. national team and follow the Houston Dash. You can, you know, follow the Canadian national team and Portland Thorns, you know. Um, right. And it's one of the things I think is what made me fall in love with soccer is that there will, I will, I will never reach an end of it, right? Like right. think of think of NFL, there's what, 32 teams right now? It's like, right, that's, right. that's a pretty finite number, right? It's a finite <laughs> amount of history. One country, one championship year, you know, not even year round. Y- you could absorb all that knowledge and hit the end, right? I will right. never, ever hit the end of soccer. I mean, I, I said to an F- NFL fan I was arguing with once, I was like, imagine what your life would be like if there was an NFL in every country. And right. like his, his eyes just exploded like, oh, I hadn't thought of it like that. I'm like, that's what it's like. It's so right. awesome. Right. And then you've got the, the men, the women, the national team, U20, mm-hmm. U17, like Champions League, all this stuff. Anyway, I'm, well, I'm, I, I'm digressing. But it, yeah, it, it's, it's that there's so much of it. So it can yeah. be overwhelming to a new fan. So I really like your phrase on ramp. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, and I think the senior national team mattering is the reason why we care about those youth, youth national teams too. Exactly. You know, it, like, exactly. I wouldn't care so much about when a gopher from Minnesota got called into a youth national team if I didn't know that the end of that road could be the best team in the entire world. And so like, that's part of the reason because there are youth national teams in other sports too. I mean, we randomly see Minnesotans on a youth national team for basketball. We have a decent basketball pipeline for being such a small state, whatever, but it never seems that shiny to me because the basketball, you know, the USA basketball team is probably second most shiny to soccer, but it's still not as big as winning world cups and what that means in soccer and so the youth national teams even mean more you know when when a gopher's playing in the CONCACAF championship for the u20s in a different sport that just would not have the same stickiness to me right um, but because the national the women's national team especially matters so much then i really care when someone gets called into the youth national team because then i can start hoping you know i can i'm like oh, yeah. wait, what if oh what if she made it to the 23s oh <laughs> What if she eventually got to play in a friendly? What if she eventually, you know, then you can start getting your fan on. And because, you know, there's no way that the national team will ever play enough games so that you're, you know, seeing the national team in your state every year. Right. Mm -hmm. Unless you're lucky enough to be Florida right now. Um, (laughs) Right. But that, you know, having NWSL, you know, and also by extension, UWS, WPSL, Mm -hmm you know, what we, what we can watch on TV. It, it's like, you can still follow, you know, whoever are your locals that you want to follow, or, or maybe they're the alums from, from your alma mater, right? right. Like I, I get excited having gone to a, a pretty small school that added varsity soccer, you know, only 20 years ago, like, Oh my God, there's a rice player playing professionally. Like, Oh my God. You know? Um, right. And, and I think college is such a great way to support soccer locally, community-wise, women's soccer, there's 333 Division One women's programs, and then you have Division Two, and Division Three, right. and mm-hmm. junior college, and NAIA. So, you know, I don't think anyone is 
you know, a far drive away, maybe, you know, I don't think anyone in the country is probably more than an hour away from a women's college soccer match this spring. Right. 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 (laughs) And they're usually free or really cheap. You know, they're also often on, on radio if they're not streamed. Mm -hmm. You know, but talk talk a little bit about your involvement with, with uh, the the Minnesota Gophers and and how you've seen, you mm-hmm. know, that program change as as Andrew has grown. Yeah, I think so. I you know the Gophers are the main team I cover. They're our highest level women's team, so they're I would I would probably describe them as like my primary beat. Um, this has been obviously a really bizarre year with the season pushed to the spring for yes. the Big Ten, um, but they. You know, they're a program where I, I grew up in rural northern Minnesota and went to college in rural western Minnesota. And so I'd never been to a gopher soccer game before. And I went with Brian Carstead, who's a longtime Minnesota soccer writer um, and probably known by folks listening. Um, and I sat with him in the stands at Elizabeth Lyle Robbie Stadium, which is a really nice sort of thousand seat um, stadium sort of on the edge of St. Paul. And I'm sitting there. And at the time, it was 2016. So it was like, you know, they won the Big Ten championship. They had, you know, the Big Ten forward of the year in Simone Kalander. They had an All-American in Rashida Beal. Uh, Josie Stever was in the midfield. I mean, the team was just absurd. They were so, so, so good. And I think they maybe they won the double that year, regular season and tournament. And I'm sitting in the stands and I'm actually just getting really mad because I'm like, this team is so good. And I've never seen coverage of them. And you're just sitting watching this outstanding team where, frankly, the passing and the combination and the attack is better than some of the men's pro stuff I've seen. I mean, like women's college soccer at its absolute best can be so, so, so good because, as you said, there's so many programs. So it really does have a decent funneling effect where, like, really top talent can be found because there's so many programs surfacing it, whatever. And so um, from there, I just started covering the the program. And um, since then, you know, the U of M has had its ups and downs, but they've had, you know, multiple Big Ten championships. They're just a really high quality program. Steph Galan is a longtime coach. But, um, you know, I find them and even other women's soccer stories really, really um, uh, fulfilling to cover in part because they're really willing and sort of thirsty to take part in that process. Like I think Meg Linehan had a tweet today where sometimes journalists are pitching to women's soccer teams and they get no's, even if they're pitching like an obviously positive story and it's sort of insane, but um, really thankfully locally in Minnesota, I found the opposite to be true, which is just that they're so starved for any amount of attention that they've already earned, but aren't getting right they say yes to almost any kooky idea I come up with. And so I, you know, I've done like a field goal cooking contest with Allie Lipscher for charity. Um, (laughs) I've, you know, I do live chats with players in coffee shops. You know, I do, um, you know, talk to people at Blackheart, which is a a local gay soccer bar on University Avenue in Midway near Allianz Field, where near where I live. I mean, I've done watch parties in breweries just because these um, these players and these coaches have invested so much in their lives to get where they are. And if someone's willing to try and help amplify that, you know, I've found them to be really excited, even if you're trying to do sort of um, creative, interesting off the wall things as a way to bring in more people. And so I've found it to be really satisfying. I think the team has had a good bounce back year. Um, 
And in general, they've been producing the type of talent, like I spoke to earlier, where they're really capable of playing in the pro ranks, just maybe not like a lights out NWSL starter. So there's a few former Gophers um, plying their trade overseas right now in, in Champions League squads, not in the Barcelonas of the world or the Man Cities of the world, but like in um, in Serbia. So every league basically has one team that usually is head and shoulders above the others because they make <laughs> that it to the Champions biggest payroll. <laughs> yeah, and they make yeah. it to Champions League and then they have a chance to showcase and then they make more revenue. So like Molly Fiedler is at uh, Subatica in, in Serbia. Um, Rashida Beal is in Romania, you know, playing for the best team in that league. Emily Heslin has played in Serbia and in Israel um, before that. You know, and actually a couple of Minnesotans are in uh, Iceland right now. So Annie Williams, who's a Cottage Grove native. Uh, do they think it's fa- hot? Do, do, do they feel hot in Iceland? She Well, she was <laughs> wearing a coat in an Instagram story. So I need to ask Annie how cold it is actually. But they... Um, <laughs> But she and her fellow uh, SDSU, South Dakota State, uh, teammate Maggie Smither, who's not a Minnesotan but has played in different leagues in Minnesota, um, are both in Iceland right now. So, for example, there's just leagues all over Europe where you can at least get a decent um, monthly pay. But then, as you spoke to in the NWSL, housing is almost as big as pay because in any major city in the world, housing might be, you know, your single biggest expense. So um, they're just, you know, Minnesota is a great program to follow. And it's, it's the type of thing where I, I still almost get frustrated sometimes because I'll try every single strategy in the book to get more sort of men's soccer fans to realize that if they're willing to cheer on the U S women's national team, um, and we really do want to be supporting women players, uh, you should be finding ways to support those women locally. And so I just think we have a power five, like winning serious high level program right in our backyard um, with a beautiful venue, you know, in non COVID times to go and watch a game. So I, yeah, it's just an exciting um, opportunity to cover soccer in this area. Cause I think like we mentioned earlier in non NWSL markets, I still think there's a ton of good opportunity to watch good soccer. Um, and I used to go watch the stars, the men's team when they were in the NASL, that soccer was not always very good. I mean, like I, <laughs> I would, there would be 5,000 people in the stands and they weren't really connecting passes. I mean, like they were not always that good. Um, so I, 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 I always laugh when, if I'm talking to somebody, you know, at a pub watching soccer and it's someone's like, Oh, you guys watch women's soccer. I'm like oh, women's football, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, Clearly, you've never watched it, right? And it's a kind right, of thing like right. you can't tell me, even if you're a hardcore Premier League fan, you can't tell me that every game is a really great game. Sometimes no. the games are shit, right? And and it, it's like that happens. But but you're watching because you've made a connection with a club, a player, um, the community that you enjoy, however drunken it may be when you're watching that game, right. the friendships you make, um, you know, as you and I are doing right now, the the, the fun bullshitting back and forth, being right. able to talk soccer with with those friends. And that's really what it's about. Like, mm-hmm. a, as much as I understand the need for the message of, you know, we need to support women, we need to support our daughters, that kind of stuff. Like, I think that message can get overused in terms of it's not ultimately it's not a charity thing right that that's right. a huge factor of it but bottom line this is a sport like any other sport mm-hmm. and and if you watch it and you and if you have any liking for soccer and you go out and watch one of these games and you don't like it then you know maybe you just don't really like soccer right. after all right well, like cuz soccer is so it's so easy to watch right it adapts really well to whatever age whatever level 
in a way that like there, you know, you're not going to want to watch a, a contact football game at the 14 year old level, right? It's considerably <laughs> different. It's considerably different, right? Than what you see in college and pro. But, you know, if we're watching the U-17 U.S. women or the U-20 U.S. women, it's like, sure, they're not quite Julie Ertz and Megan Rapinoe yet, but it's still like you're seeing some serious skill. If anyone happened happened to watch the CONCACAF championships last, it was right before COVID shut everything down, probably February February, 2020. If anyone watched that tournament and they watched the U.S. team, that team was absurd. They were lit. I mean, I I feel so bad for Laura Harvey. She didn't get to take that team to the World Cup, you know? I I was losing. So Katie Duong, who's a gopher, was on that team. And she got to play in the 10 with just absurdly great surrounding talent. Trinity Rodman, who's now been drafted. But everyone on that team was absurd. It was... It was honestly like some of the most fun soccer I've watched in my entire life. They were so, so, so damn good. And it was, I mean, they're the U20s. Like they, you know, yeah. and, but the crazy thing is as much as they, they won the championship and they won CONCACAF, um, all these other nations still had really good teams. I mean, at other youth levels, the U.S. does not win. I mean, like they they lose to Mexico, they lose to maybe Costa Rica. They we they, don't even always qualify for the U seventeen no. World Cup. We've never won a U seventeen Women's no. World Cup. We haven't won all the U twenty. Yeah, like so it's it, really. I mean, yeah, if, because if you, you s- haven't. You don't have the advantage of like with the the senior women where we've brought them together so many times, right? That that they know each other so well and that's an advantage in, in and of itself. And there's just no way to pull that off with U-17s and U-20s. Right. But it's like you said, I, I think it's, it's about, it's the same thing of like watching a new TV show. Like it's never going to be, it's not always the first episode that hooks you. You need to give a few episodes and then you need to see if you get into the rhythm of it. Or even frankly, if you want to binge a show, sometimes the first season is not the best. You need to get into it. It's the same with a brand new soccer team. So if you've never watched the Gophers or Kansas City NWSL or Chicago Red Stars, you need to watch more than once because it's not always going to be the first spark catch. But the thing is now, you know, now after I've covered the Gophers for this long, I don't even really watch the U S men's national team anymore. I don't even really watch Minnesota United anymore, (laughs) even though they play a mile away because all of my energy and passion is in covering this, this team and other women's team. And it's not like a choice I made. I just don't actively pursue as many men's games. You just got absorbed by it. Yeah. Just you shift your passion. And so I, I completely agree with you, Jen. I think, um, and my biggest recommendation would be like, go to a few, try it a few times, like try a couple games. Um, and, and if it doesn't work, try a different team or whatever. But I mean, it's just, but that's such think, a great point about it. It might take a few games, just like yeah. a lot of TV shows take, take a couple episodes right. at least. And, you know, make sure it's, it's social, right? Like don't just mm-hmm. sit at home on your computer, on your laptop. You know, if you can go somewhere where you can, you know, like outside at a patio, uh, at a pub where they can put on a big screen so you can have some other people, but you're still, you know, not all tightly packed together um, right. or, you know, a party in your backyard or, or something like that, where it's like, um, or maybe you are watching alone, but you're texting with friends who are also watching. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've seen the live chat on, on Twitch, right? Like, like just, yeah. Because I think the social aspect, um, for the most part, it's so great. It, it, it can be a little crazy and a little over intense sometimes, but it's also, I mean, I've met so many great friends because of women's soccer and social media, you know, like right. it's, it, it's crazy. Right. 
Well, Matt, thank you so much for for taking the time to bullshit Woso with me because, uh, you know, <laughs> it's what I like to do more than anything else. And and I think uh, you've you have that same disease now, too. Yeah, for sure. Well, and Jen, I really appreciate it. I, you know, I tell people all the time you do easily the best job of anyone of using your podcast to give so many different writers and analysts and, and folks around the country a way to sort of speak to their specific area. You easily do the best job of that, of anyone of just giving people snapshots into different areas. And I feel like that's how I've learned about different random teams and markets. And Good. so really happy to do that for Minnesota, even without an NWSL team. I, I promise we will do everything in our power as Minnesotans to expand the league North. If you all want like a, a a twin cities trip in your nwsl uh season so we'll we'll do everything we can to show people that woso can work in minnesota and i'm expecting when minnesota has its opening nwsl game that you buy me a couple beers i yeah of course i'll buy all the beers i that weekend i would be buying beers for everybody i would be losing my mind and i would be you know i would just be walking walking to the game living at the stadium that weekend for sure time to wrap it up with the back four first and foremost challenge cup kicking off friday april 9th so we've got two groups of five teams so everybody gets four games two at home two away it's basically a month-long tournament every game will be live everywhere in the world so twitch internationally and cbs cbs network slash paramount plus for USA. There are some Canadian workarounds. Um, I hate to say, say that just so, you know, blithely for my Canadian listeners. Um, but I know they are paying more attention to making sure Canadians have access to everything because of course I know there's some CBS things in Canada, but not all of it. Regardless, there's a way to watch. If you really want to watch, learn how to learn how to use a VPN, uh, long story short. <laughs> so we've got kickoff on April 9th. Everybody plays four games, two groups. It's based on points. You have to win your group to advance to the Challenge Cup final. There's no quarterfinals. There's no semifinals. It's straight to a final. The final will be Saturday, May 8th, live on CBS. That's CBS National. be awesome to see that. And then the NWSL regular season kicks off a week later. Now, do keep in mind that that first week of Challenge Cup, yes, it overlaps with uh, the... April FIFA window um, was kind of unavoidable and the league made the decision that they'd rather have national team players miss uh, the beginning of challenge cup, than compact the schedule later or make the schedule even shorter. So it is what it is. It'll be exciting to watch. And I think we're all happy to have another challenge cup. And of course, as you're prepping for the 2021 NWSL regular season, I highly recommend getting a copy of the Keeper Notes 2020 NWSL Almanac. More than 370 pages of comprehensive stats, game notes for every season of the league, including the 2020 Challenge Cup and Fall Series. You can buy the print copy, the PDF copy, you can buy both. Just head to KeeperNotes.com and click on NWSL Almanacs. And I am actually working on an Olympic Women's Soccer Almanac 2, Uh, hoping to get that done by June. And as I've already mentioned, there is an April April FIFA window. We've got the USA heading to Europe. They're going to play Sweden. They're going to play France. We've got Canada heading over there to play England and I think Wales. 
Uh, of course, we have the final playoff games for the Olympics with Cameroon and Chile in a series and China and South Korea in a series. Uh, I know there's some other games as well. So keep an eye uh, on the, the Keeper Notes WOSO Google Calendar that I have. You can access it via keepernotes.com or you can search for it on Google Calendar. I try to post any of the games that I hear about, especially if they have a broadcast option in the U.S. And last but not least, as I mentioned in the Gensplainer, April 21st, that is the day that we will know the USA opponents for the 2021 Olympics as FIFA will hold a draw for both the men's and women's Olympic soccer tournaments on that day. Um, We'll finally know who we play in the group stage and what the path looks like uh, in the knockout games. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. Big shout out to Roughneck Scarves. Big shout out to IcarusFC.com. If you want some custom kits for your kids' team or your Sunday rec team or your summer team, whatever, you don't want to use the same old cookie cutter Adidas or Nike kits, head over to IcarusFC.com and check out the customization that they offer. And of course, I want to thank everyone for listening. Anyone who emails with a stat question, likes, subscribes, follows on Twitter, all that kind of stuff. Appreciate it all. And of course, thanks to my producer, Sean Ringrose, whose own podcast you can check out at anchor.fm slash genorange, as in generation orange. So that's G-E-N orange. So big thanks to Sean for helping me with this podcast. And as always, the beautiful game network for making this podcast possible. But now she's anybody's girl.